0: Welcome to the Bold SLP Podcast. We are so happy that you're here and can't wait to share with you all of the amazing conversations we've been having. We are the co-founders of the Bold SLP Collective, and we are also your hosts, Lisa, Desi, and myself, Ingrid. Each of us has a variety of experiences in all things bilingual and bimodal speech-language pathology. You'll get to know us pretty well on here.
1: We started this podcast to share our lived experiences, but also because we want to bring advocacy and cultural humility to the forefront of every speech therapy conversation. We hope that you'll join us each week, and we hope that you enjoy this episode.
0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Bold SLP podcast. I am Ingrid, your host, and I'm here with Desi and Lisa and a very special guest uh, especially to me because she was my dream guest when i dreamt up this crazy idea uh, fong is here and i'm going to let her introduce herself um, to you guys because i'm just thrilled for her to be here welcome fong oh,
2: well thank you thank you my name is fong lin halifax pronounced she her and um i have to be very intentional about everything that i do in my life as a speech and language and a communication scientist and a mother of three. And I don't always say yes, but I purposely said yes um, to this conversation and dialogue today. So it means I feel like it'll be a meaningful
0: conversation. I am so excited. I can't wait. Just your DMs and your emails. I'm always like, oh, I showed Desi. Look at what she said. But I wanted to dive in. Um, I I know I shared these questions with you. I'm really curious. Uh, about how you came to be an SLP. And then I know that things have changed for you. So what was your why? And then how has that why changed as your career has moved and progressed?
2: Oh, good, good, thorough questions here, Ingrid. Um, So my SLP path and narrative, honestly, I don't know how I have ended up here alongside you all today or my life. Um, Earlier today, I was having a conversation with a large school district um to come out in august to support 250 slps and then i get to see my own clients and then last night i was talking to a university about being a bilingual bicultural and bold unapologetic slp Um, so i feel really i feel very privileged i'm not going to say lucky because i've worked my ass off I chose this profession um, out of love, literally. I um, was best friends and dating, that gets complicated, someone in high school and and throughout part of college. Um, And he was, is a stutterer. And that's what introduced me to the field initially. So an important part of my SOP narrative starts with my own family story. And I think that's how it is for all of us who are bilingual and bicultural. My family, um, they were Vietnamese refugees. My father fought for South Vietnam, and um, they lost the war. And so after the war, um, he was given an opportunity to go to a re-education camp. Um, But there was no education going on because it was really torture and um, jail. And so he was there for two years. And when he got out, um, him and my mother decided to get married. And someone approached him and said, hey, Kyung, because you have these naval skills, we would love to give you an opportunity um, to take you and your wife um, and 54 additional people across the South China Sea. And um, he accepted this because they got free passage. Everyone else had to pay 10 ounces of gold. And um, they, before they started, you know, my dad, had asked all of the people if they they were sure they wanted to go, because he knew that the weather looked treacherous, that people do not survive this journey across the big ocean. They just had a small fishing Vietnamese boat. But collectively, everyone said, we want to go because people were disappearing, people were starving, people didn't have jobs. I mean, they were being punished um, for believing in the philosophies of the South Vietnamese. So, Second day of the journey, engine died. My dad got clothes and blankets from people and jackets with buttons, weaved it together to make a sail. They kept going. Um, Somewhere in the middle of the journey, there was a huge storm. Um, I did some research on the interwebs, and it was Typhoon Elaine. And my mom tells me that as the boat was almost about to capsize, um, that a whale came out of the water and supported the boat. Um, until the storm passed. And then eventually they ended up in Hong Kong. And the reason why they ended up in Hong Kong was at that time, there were so many Vietnamese refugees um, that the countries that were receiving them, um, they were saturated, so they closed off their borders. Hong Kong did not. And um, once they landed um, at 3 a.m., I was born. And so, you know, I share this narrative and I've shared it over and over and over again. And I always think, you know, is this redundant? Is it too much? Is it even relevant? Um, That's my ego talking. But I think at the heart of it, it's the foundation for everything that I do. But everything that I think about and feel about, um, I'm a big dealer, y'all, is all looking forward in our profession is always very tightly tethered to my past and my history. And I think for me, you know, I I was the first person to go to college. My mom, we lived in a two-bedroom mobile home in Wiley, Texas, where I was the only person who looked like me in school um, besides my sister um, and my brother. And and, um, I think, you know, Matt thought I was going to stay close by, but I always had this, I don't even know where it came from, but I was like, I will go to the University of Texas at Austin Okay, by the way, y'all, I cry every day. And I, I'm i just gonna let you know that I will my eyeballs will get wet in this conversation today for sure. Um because it's meaningful to me. Um and if y'all are not okay with tears, I will let you unpack that in therapy. Um, but I'm
0: okay with it. So we cry. You know, yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> but, think we um, cried here last week. Oh yeah. But I
2: I um I went to school there and we had no money. My father worked two full-time jobs my entire childhood and adulthood. Um, My mom would sew and she would go to the factory and sew together like shoulder pads onto like a shirt for like a couple of cents and you know she would do that. She eventually ended up working at a sewing factory once my brother went to kindergarten. Um, So we pulled out lots of loans. Um, I pulled out a lot of student loans. My parents pulled out parent loans and I went to UT. It wasn't until my sophomore year where I realized that we had to get an additional degree. (laughs) I was like, wait, what? But nobody, I like, no, I had no idea. Like there was not someone else in my family. And like, I was the first person to navigate through this whole college experience. And starting at the age of six in first grade, I knew that I was our family interpreter, our family translator. I filled out all of the forms for my brother and my sister. Like I did it all. And I, I hold a very special place in my heart for the eldest of immigrant and refugee families because- we know a hardship um, that is very different than I think our siblings do. And I'm grateful for that. Um, and then I was going to stay at UT because there was a human that I like liked and wanted to kiss. And he was still a senior at UT. But then out of EGO, I applied to the top five programs in the country just to see if I could get in. And one of those programs was the top one at the time. This was in 19, nope, this was in 2000 and one, um, and it was the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And um, Dr. Gary Wisemer wrote back to me and was like, hey, Fong, um, I see that, congratulations on being accepted. So I already knew I got in, so go me for that ego trip. Um, but I wasn't gonna go to Wisconsin, because that was too far. In um, my senior year in college, my mom was also diagnosed with um, lung and brain cancer. So I was gonna stick around close by. But then he goes, um, by chance, are you representative? And he just basically listed every single category of race and ethnicity. And if you are, then we have a scholarship for you where we will pay for everything for the next two years in graduate school and give you a living stipend. And I was like, um, cause I owed so much money at this point. So I called Matt. And I was like, and I talked to her every day and I was like, hey, mom, you know, he was like, you can have this scholarship. And she was like, go, like, I'm in remission, go to school. So I did, I went to Wisconsin, did that, started my doctorate, my PhD back down in Austin to be alongside the the human being that I liked, liked. And um, after one semester, I... <laughs> Y'all know when you're in a space and you're like, I don't know what the hell is going on. I don't know this information that's being taught to me. Um, I was not supported. Um, and I will say that the those six-ish months felt, I've never felt dumber in my whole life. And so I resigned from that experience. Um, I used to say quit, but I was working way too hard to say that I quit. I made a different choice And a week after resigning and thinking, I'll just start working, um, my mom's cancer came back. So I moved back home to Wiley, Texas, and I started working at a cooperative, which is where school districts are rural and small. So then there's like an organization that oversees all of their special education departments. In December of that CF internship year, my mom passed away but she got to see me become a speech-language pathologist. And I always say that she worked so hard on saying that because she was so proud. And, you know, y'all, Vietnamese is like a monosyllabic language and we don't have sounds like and blends. Um, And so she worked really hard to say that. I mean, her children were her pride. Uh, So since then, I have been within and alongside the schools, kept my head down, did my work, kept my head down, did my work. And um, eventually, I was in a district um, close to the Austin area. And they were like, do you want to be lead of this district? And I was like, no, that responsibility, no thanks. Attention on what you do, no thanks. They asked again. I was like, nope. And then they asked a third time. And I was like, all right, fine. I'll do it. Kept my head down, did my work, kept my head down, did my work. And then our regional service center, which in the state of Texas, school districts are divided up into 20 different regions. And each region has like this educational service center. And um, they needed a new person for region 13. And I said, no, they asked again. I said, no, they asked a third time. And I was like, okay. So then I oversaw about 60 school districts. And within that work in those leadership roles, now looking back on it, I'm honoring the past version of myself, but I don't think I realized how it has set me up to really help out us (laughs) as bilingual bicultural SOPs. As a lead, I remembered we used a workload analysis and I was like, you do realize our bilingual folks are doing double the evaluation and taking twice as long to write the reports and our IEP meetings last twice as long. And then on top of that, when we're walking down the hall, and there's a family who sees you, and they're like, "Go, foam, go, foam, go, foam, fo." And I'm like, "Can you help me?" And you're like, "Of course, I can help," because I'm not helping them; I'm helping my family as well, you know. And I think that's something to recognize for all of us is that people tell me, and they, you know, professional peers, they're like, "You're so emotional." And I've even had people say, you know, because you're so emotional, it's unprofessional. And it wasn't until someone pointed out to me that. When I'm talking or presenting, I'm not just talking about work. I'm talking about my life. So we have to live through all of the experiences that we've had to like digest, right? and and the language, the English language that we had to cram in order to 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 then work alongside our families. At the regional level, I did the same thing, brought in all the bilingual people, like you are the star, you are coveted here are ways for you to um, communicate with one another, but here are ways for us to advocate. Um, And so after those experiences, I worked in a a clinical setting for about seven years. At that time, I um, saw clients in the clinic, graduated many of them, um, but because I love the schools, I also was given caseloads in the schools and evaluations. And I was also um, a presenter, and so once a month, that was my rule. I would leave the clinical setting to go travel to wherever, leave my three children, partner who I ended up marrying, the the human
0: I like liked. And um, I'm so glad you it, mentioned it because I'm like, did you end up with that human or not? <laughs> I, I <laughs> it's really invested.
2: I will say that um, Jeremy Palafox is the smartest decision that I have ever made. Um, and he is, you know, some people just light up a room. Um, that's that's him. So, so I get to spend my days with him. Um, and so, yeah, worked at the clinical setting, did all of these things. Um, the things got really heavy. And I would say somewhere around 2018 and then all through 2019, I got sick like a lot. And I was like, oh, I just must be tired. And then in April of 2019, there was a day I woke up and I, you know, I've already cried today, but at that time I couldn't stop crying. Like there was something going on, um, that something was depression and anxiety. (laughs) Um, but I, um, I didn't go to work on that day in April. And, um, I think it was around then that I realized that what I prided myself on, being the hardest person, hardest working person in the room. Because Matt taught that to me, right? He was like, work two full-time jobs, earn your keep, do all of the things, um, learn English so well to where no one will discriminate against you and judge you and you know do all of these things. But I mean, it hit me in the face like big time. Um, and so since then, and I'm a huge mental health advocate and I wish we could all have, um, Therapist, just kind of on our shoulders all the time, um, helping us out. Um, but I, I learned to set up boundaries and I learned to fuel myself first and then giving from my amazing magical overflow. Um, but I also learned when entities or people were taking advantage of your hard work. When you set up a boundary, that you need to to preserve yourself um people who love you respect that boundary people who were taking advantage of you will push back against that boundary and i think that was a really big lesson for me so now um since september of 2020 um um, after the advent of covid i started my own business out of fear i was scared Shitless, like there. I was like, What am I doing? I'm not a business person, I'm not about the money and the profit. But I have learned in the last almost three years now, um, that our representation is needed and our lived experiences are needed, and we can also learn and figure things out. Um, so I have a small clinic, I see a handful of clients in the uh, In the back of my house is a space that has a separate entrance. I converted that into a clinic. And then um, just last year, we built this backyard office. Um, And that's about 10% of my work. About 90% of my work is now supporting school districts and state organizations on a myriad of topics that are very personal to me. So I would say that might (laughs) be has been culturally responsive and sustaining and loving 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 practices um and then i'm a huge public school advocate and i don't talk necessarily about i do because people ask me to about evidence based practices for our students and our families but about advocacy for our for us because we are the biggest resource that they have um in order to receive support for their communication journey. Um and so that's what I've been doing. And here we are on this podcast.
0: I love all of that. i was and really I'm cool. like Lisa didn't know beforehand my connection to you. And I think like just listening to you talk, I'm like, yep, that's why, you know, I connect so much to you. I'm a first gen. I'm the first one. I was like UT is my dream. Like all the things, all the things like out of ego to go to a top 10 school because you must be perfect and achieve and delete any Mexican out of your accent, like all of it, you know, in terms of my speech journey. Um, And oddly enough, UT Austin was the only school I didn't get into. Out of all the top schools that I applied to, I ended up going to UT Dallas.
2: That's where my mom thought I was going to go. I applied to UT Dallas as well. Yeah. So you were at the Collier Center.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I was oh, there in
2: two thousand and nine. Okay, um, mm-hmm. I'm older than you. Yeah, I think one of the best gifts now, you know, in doing presentations, you know, I'll talk about culturally responsive assessments or interventions, but the biggest and most unexpected gift has been like the ingrids of the world coming up
1: afterwards,
2: crying and saying, "Someone is saying aloud." the things that I've been experiencing and the things that I've been feeling and feeling less than or feeling not worthy in our field. Um, and unless you live it, people, they don't get it. You know, they they just don't get it. And there's been so much, I don't know, understanding of mutual narrative. Um, that, that's been really special.
0: It was for me when I saw you speak at that conference on the summit. I was looking at your book right away and your Instagram and other people who you followed. And that's how I got here. Oh, yeah. we were each other
2: out in ways that we didn't even know.
0: It's true. And now I'm even, you're still helping me because with your form that you filled out before this podcast, I already looked up so many things that you mentioned on there, but I don't, I one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about is how I love what you said about you just the, positivity in what you you share when you said like yes change is moving slowly but you said it's happening quietly and boldly and I was like yes like that speaks to my heart because I I don't know why I need that maybe I needed to go to therapy to talk why do I need to feel like things are getting better to feel okay I don't know but I really needed to hear that when you wrote that on that form Um, so I wanted to see if you wanted to talk a little bit more about what you mean by that that change in our field is happening quietly and boldly,
2: yeah. I feel like, and I love all of the great, meaningful things that social media has given us, right? Like the ability to connect with people. And um I have found lovely, amazing friends um, you know, through through online platforms. And I also feel like some of the messaging that gets out there, is not necessarily all of the positive things that, that are happening. And I think one of the privileges that I have right now in working alongside state organizations or school districts all across the country is that I will always go in, even families, you know, where they bring this human child and they're like, he can't talk, he can't, he can't, he can't. I mean, honestly, our whole profession is based on a deficit model. Um, my goal is to just crank that stuff upside down, because I was like, we can't, this is not, this isn't going to work. So I think, you know, whenever you earn the trust of somebody or someone from an organization, and anytime anyone asks me to do a presentation, I will say I would love to have a kind of like a focus group on Zoom. So I'll have a 20 or 30 minute focus group with a couple of people from that school district or that state. Um, And this is where I talk to them and I say, I want to know your pain points. Like, I truly want to know what your need is. And given they don't know me well, but I I say I I need to know this so I can reframe my work. And I will always frame presentation. I'm honest and I will give agency in what I'm talking about. I will not sit there and spiral in in the need. Right. Um, But I need to know what the true need is. And so. I feel like I have been able to be witness to, to observe, to get to hear and digest like these awesome things. So like professors who are changing the terminology that they use in teaching their courses and not even using the word pathology, like that's amazing to me. Or another professor in California who says, I actually don't believe in assessments and what is normal and unapologetically talking about that. Um, Or another professor, this is Dr. Betty Yu, who I think is revolutionizing our field and talking about what is accent modification and why are we using it? And why could this potentially be harmful to entire communities of people? And that takes so much bravery for all of these human beings who do this work. The reason why I say quiet and bold is because it is not safe for all of us to do this totally out in the open. And I will say that a lot of my work, maybe half of my work, I don't talk about. Because if I talk about it, then I cannot move that needle. And the other part too, and this goes to the framework that I think you're gonna ask about, the framework that I made up about um, dismantling and redesign systems. Is that, yeah, is that advocacy y'all is the long game. So for example, I know, where there was a clinical individual at a university setting advocate, bilingual, bicultural, advocating, advocating, advocating. And um, there was not a response to this advocacy. So she made a decision to, to, um, to resign from that experience and go somewhere else. But then the next person who came in benefited from her advocacy. Now, did it feel good for that other first person? no because she felt like when we're advocating we are always pushing against the status quo and whenever we are advocating we have to understand that we are advocating to someone with more power than us right there are always power dynamics within every single space that we're in and so um you know i always say advocacy is the long game so There's this framework and I totally made it up. And I I make things, I've been making things up for the last 20 years in my profession. Mm -hmm. I make up informal um, studies that I do with my speech pathologist, informal research projects. And I don't think I gave myself credit for all of this work but now in this season of my life, um, I'm in a different space. And I was like, you know what? People used to make up terminology all the time. Then they started using it. Then other people started using it. So, there was a university individual who reached out to me about a year ago, and she said, Fong, I want you to come present to our university, and I want you to put together a presentation on uh, disrupting systems. And I was like, what? I mean, I talk about speech-language sciences. I talk about advocacy for educators, da 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 da, da. But um, now, whenever someone asks me something, and I feel like I'm too stupid to talk about it, I check myself and I'm like, hold up, if I don't do it, who is going to do it? And I'd rather it come from my lived experience. So I thought about disrupting systems. Have I disrupted systems? Have I done it at any point? And with reflection and some ego as well, but I have been disrupting systems my entire time within our profession, whether I realize it or not. And the thing is, is that as language scientists. And I'm using scientists because I'm playing around with vocabulary. Um, I'm not feeling pathologists right now because I don't think people are diseases. Um, anyways, but that's if you ask me a month from now, I might change my mind. But that's how human beings are. So I um, so I thought about disrupting systems, dismantling systems, and then redesigning systems. And I came up with kind of the kind of some of the the big, bold um, considerations that have really helped me disrupt systems or I've seen other people disrupting systems whenever I go to their organization. And so the first thing, so the framework is, the first thing we gotta do is to name the need. Is we have to know what the problem is before we can fix the problem. And naming the need is really hard because Usually the people who have that need don't feel safe expressing that need. So for example, in our world as bilingual bicultural SLPs, I'll have these focus groups right before a presentation on like culturally responsive assessment practices and the people will show up. And what's interesting to me, I've noticed a trend now is that my bilingual folks don't show up. And I I know people are busy one because our workload is greater, Truths, right? Um, But then I'll get an email from their personal account and they'll say, hey, Fong, I'm sorry I missed your your focus group or your Zoom call. I didn't feel safe talking about these things alongside my peers. But I want to let you know what my perspective is so that you have some scope whenever you do this presentation on multilingual evaluation processes. But this happens over and over and over. And what's interesting to me is that there's always an arc to these emails. It's like, I don't want to be complaining. We need to stop that shit, by the way, y'all. We are not complaining. We are advocating for our needs. We are advocating for our needs with the idea of our students, our clients at the center of these needs. And we're a resource. So I do that too. I say all of these things because I've done all these things. And I say these things to remind myself, but it's not complaining. It's advocating and vocabulary is important. So I always think about when it comes to naming the need, are you really getting the people who are requiring these needs or who have the lived experience? So that's the first part of uh, disrupting systems. The second part of my framework is digesting the data. And so, you know, in our field, we're always about what's the research, what's the research, what's the data? And I love research. And I love data, I did start on my PhD journey, and it's a both and, our research is behind in our humanity. Because who has been doing the research for the last several decades of our profession? They have been white, monolingual, honestly male professionals. So when you only have a very specific majority group, you are not going to get all of the experiences of lovely us. So. It's, it's really thinking about how we're doing research right now and who is representative in this research um, and, and what lens is that through, right? So digesting the data, and whenever I talk about data, I say data is not just the research that you can find on Google Scholar or in our journals. Data is also the lived experiences of the people who are impacted by the topic that you're talking about. And so, you know, I'm doing research right now um, with a professor um, at a university on overwhelmed school-based SLPs. And what was interesting to me is that, you know, we talk about it now and what we're finding out is that school-based SLPs are advocating and leadership is not listening. So when Asher says, you need to advocate more, you need to do more workload analysis and the onus is always on the SLP and the professional, our research is saying, hold up we should be placing more onus on the organizations because they're not responding to the need. So that's a huge difference, right? So we need to change the data and we need to bring some more inclusivity into the data. And it's, people are like, oh, well now we can talk about it because now you have the research. And I always say, yeah, yeah, I have the research now, but it still counted before. So that's the second part of my disrupting systems. The third part is recognizing the representation. And so when decisions are made, I always think about, who this impacts the most and who has the lived experience to talk about this. So if we are all sitting around a table and we are talking about gender affirming care, unless you have that lived experience, I'm not gonna give as much due credit for your thoughts and feelings because you are not living through that narrative. If we are talking about neurodiversity, and you are not an autistic person with that lived experience, then I'm going to put your level of input, which is important and it's going to be secondary to the people living that lived experience. And so it's interesting to me when people are like, yeah, you know, we're going to talk about English proficiency, uh, multilingual speech language pathologists in the field, and have we talked to the people? who are experiencing all of these microaggressions. And honestly, it's discriminatory. If any entity is testing you for your English proficiency, one, I would love to be in that room to see what it looks like and sounds like and how you are justifying those practices and not saying that they're discriminatory because you have already proven yourself within your education. Okay, so looking at that representation, the fourth part is targeting the trust. So. We're trying to move things within our field all the time. we got to change this and change this and change this and change this. I have learned that things don't happen unless somebody has a relationship with that other person. So I can go into a space and talk about best practices all day long to a special education director. But if she, she has no feelings about Fong, Lynn, Palafox, usually that's not going to happen. So I I think about, and and targeting the trust goes back to everything. I'm all about connection, relationship rapport. And I'll give my, this is the one thing I know I can give myself an A++++ for in my entire professional career is the relationships that I have formed alongside my students, clients, families, because I still keep in touch with them. Not to talk about their progress on their mean length of utterance, but to be like, hey, how's life? What's going on? And that's where I feel like we are not always the ones that give and our clients and students and patients take. We really benefit as much as they do. Like thank you for we, saying our, that. Yes, we make it so hierarchical. All that our whole profession is based on hierarchy. Like yes. we about language and communication, which is why right now with neurodiversity diversity informing practices, I am I am moving back and I am observing because I don't have that lived experience. I feel like I've totally taken a different tangent, but that goes back to the representation, the targeting, the trust. And then the last part of my framework that I created and developed is personal peace. And so for me, for all of us in doing this work and in thinking about it, like once you look at things through a culturally responsive lens, like we can't undo it, right? Like anytime I walk into a space now, I'm like, huh, I am the only person of color here, or hmm, the representation of this leadership team. I'm noting it as my data. Um, And I think whenever we do all of that work, and whenever we are also digesting these microaggressions, and this commentary, and being gaslit for having big feelings about something, which is your life, um, is that because I've had my mental health journey, which I'm always working on, is that we have to find peace within this work. And so I'm very intentional about not digesting too much social media or too much news. Like I can't do news y'all, I've never been able to do news. Like it makes me cry and sad. And then when I wake up in the morning, I used to just check, I don't know, Instagram, Facebook, all the things, right? And, but those stories, shootings and, you know, Asian hate and all, it would get stuck in my head and my heart like all day long. Um, So I I protect it. Um, And then part of the personal piece for me personally, and we we talked about this before, I think the record button was uh, pushed, is that agency is also rest. And so I rest and it's interesting to me like now in my work right like some days are clinic days some days are presentation prep days some weeks have like three presentations some months have zero you know like it it all varies and i've noticed that whenever i don't feel like that anxious grind i think there's something wrong so i'm like it's like i'm i'm weird manic about it like oh i got to I gotta respond to some emails now, and I'm like, "What am I doing?" And so, and so, I purposely and intentionally rest now. One of the best moments I had, y'all, I'll share it with you. So, my therapist, um, her name is Dr. Full Change, which is crazy and amazing that that's her name. Um, and I purposely sought out an Asian American mental health specialist. And I was talking about being overwhelmed about work, and and there are days when I feel like I carry the entire weight. <laughs> of supporting our multilingual populations, like on my head and heart. And I do feel like my work will be meaningful, right? You just want to help where you can in all the ways. And um, and, and and it's hard to justify resting when my mom never got to rest. I mean, she worked and worked and worked and worked, and then she died. Like that was it. And so Dr. Full Change was like, okay, Fong, so what if perhaps through your rest, she gets to rest where she is right now. And I was like, good job, Dr. Full Change. Don't oh, make us cry. You've earned every penny that i paid out of pocket for, which is a privilege. And I get that.
0: Mm-hmm. But
2: I, I feel like we need to sustain ourselves because this work is, it feels so big
0: because it's our life. It's not just yeah. our work. And And so, parents and our grandparents.
2: Yes, and you know, VTC is out of California, and they said to me one time in a, it was it was a comment on one of my posts, and they said, "You are the ancestor that our field needs," and I think that's the best compliment I've ever received. But I think about that ancestors are big for me, and I think they're really big for our bilingual, bicultural magicians that are out there and humans that are out there and so but we do our our work is very tethered to our our family narratives so I don't know if I answered your questions but
0: (laughs) I was gonna say even just preparing for the episode I already put it on out into the universe that I want a part two and I hope that you want a part two because you're just beautiful like I don't know what else to say. But I think we're ready for our last word, if you are, and I hope you're ready to come back because we have so much more to talk about. I have a phrase for my last word, and I don't have a word in English, and I'm not going to make myself find one today. In Spanish, we have a saying of someone who is like a big sister or an aunt or someone who is like someone to follow. ejemplo seguir. It's like exemplar to you. And that's who you are to be.
1: I'm gonna try to follow that up, although that's really hard because uh, <laughs> that is a, a a definitely a. Thank
2: you, Ingrid.
1: So my um, last word is a phrase. I'm gonna I've pulled from our conversation um, the idea of brave agency. Uh, so really figuring out what what we need, the work that we're doing, building the agency that we already have. Um, and protecting ourselves, being brave for ourselves and for our clients. I, you, you've just, your conversation, your your what you told us today has really kind of reaffirmed everything that I knew, everything that I have h- held as true. So thank you. That was a really great, great conversation.
0: It's, you, it's a combination of so many things that people will love you, will respect your boundaries, changes happen quietly and boldly. But listening to the way you tell stories and and how you feel the importance of both your life and the work that you do, I will just repeat the last thing that you said that you are who our ancestors needed. Thank you. Are you
2: ready for your last word? Mm -hmm. So my word that I have held close to head and heart in the last several years has been intention is do it on purpose and do it with intentionality and put thought into it and know that we are building a life that we are worthy of. So that means intention in the the humanity that you want to support, intention in the things that we do out of love, intention in the brave moments and the quiet moments and the big loud moments, but doing it so purposely and unapologetically and then i think ultimately intention in loving ourselves and you have to know that you love yourself first and then right the rest is for the other people so you get the best parts of you and then the rest gets the best parts of you so do it all with loving intention perfect
0: thank you so much thank you have some really exciting news for you today. Our course is officially launching in June of 2023, just in a few short weeks. If you haven't heard, we've been working on a course. The three of us together here at the Bold SLP Podcast, Lisa, Desi, and myself, Ingrid, we are very excited to share it with you this summer. We want to be in community with the SLPs, students, other professionals who sign up and just really work at understanding the limitations of traditional evaluation methods, dig deeper into how to respectfully work with clients who come from different backgrounds than us, who don't share our lived experiences. So we're really going to focus our attention on solutions and strategies to prevent harm in bilingual and multicultural evaluations. And we hope to see you there. Thank you for listening and supporting the Bold SLP Collective. You can find a closed captioned version of this podcast on our YouTube channel. We will also have show notes on our website. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you do all the podcast things. Follow, subscribe, download, and review. And don't forget, we love hearing from you. So connect with us on Instagram at the Bold SLP Collective. Stay bold and humble. See you next time.